Words are powerful, but when words are organized into a story, they can captivate our minds and hearts and even move us to act in new and surprising ways. No single story embodies this power more than God's story told in the Bible. 66 books written over hundreds of years by many authors who through one spirit tell one cohesive story. It's the story of divine existence, of human imperfection, and an eternal, unyielding pursuit to reconcile a beloved creation to its creator. In our newest season, we are setting out on a journey to explore this story, the narrative of the Bible as seen through the lens of key inflection points within the text. Today, we'll begin at the start, or as the Bible puts it, in the beginning. This is Grant. And this is Jerome. You're listening to Reconciled, where we explore how Jesus finds us where we are, wherever we are, and leads us to where we need to be. Welcome back. We're excited to be kicking off a new season of Reconciled and hope you're excited to start a new journey exploring the overarching story of the Bible. Yeah, if this is your first time listening, uh, thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you with us. Uh, These discussions are going to continue to build on previous seasons where we explored the case for God's existence in a painful world. That was season one. And season two, we talked about reasons why we can trust the Bible's validity, and we briefly outlined textual, historical, and literary criticism. So if at any point you hear a reference you don't understand, feel free to check out those past seasons to hear more about these topics. But to the topic at hand, so the big picture of the Bible, Mm -hmm. the story as told from Genesis to Revelation. Before we jump in, why is it important that we focus on the bigger picture elements of Scripture in this way? Well, we think of the Bible as one book because that's how we buy it. It's all bound together. But within that book is a small library of separate works of literature written by different authors in different languages to different audiences. And that's what makes the overarching story all the more amazing. Okay, let's stop there. What do you mean? Just as we talked about last season, all of these variables create ample opportunity for the biblical text to contain contradictions or theological variants or other errors. And yet what we have in the Bible is a beautifully crafted, diverse library of books that are all consistent with each other. They all tell a story that none of the individual human authors could have fully comprehended in their own time. And so now, through the luxury of hindsight, you and I are able to see how all of these individual pieces fit together to fill out God's plan that he's been working out from before the foundations of the earth. And if that story is being laid out from the beginning, it seems only to make sense to begin precisely there. Mm -hmm. The Bible opens with one of the most widely known phrases and with the first of our key verses, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, the idea of origins itself, underpins the entire first book of the Bible. In fact, the word Genesis is actually the Greek title from the Septuagint translation. It means origin. The Hebrew title for the book is In the Beginning. 
So Genesis tells the origin story of the cosmos, of humanity, of sin, of the Jewish people, of God's plan, and it introduces many themes and storylines that continue throughout the Bible, all pointing to the arrival of Jesus. But don't all worldviews have some type of origin story? Yeah, they all do. I mean, all societies have their own what's called a cosmology, a creation story explaining the Earth's origins. How did it get here? And that cosmology then shapes that society's worldview. Now, the creation story told in Genesis 1 is unlike any other cosmology, and it has the power to change how we view God, how we view the world, and our place in it. Okay, so let's take a look at the story and see how this particular origin is unique. As we look at the book's opening, what can we learn about the larger story that is being initiated? So the opening phrase, it functions as an introduction and a summary of what's going to happen in the following verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the emphasis seems to be on the all-encompassing nature of the creation. Exactly. The heavens and the earth, or the skies and the land, is all of creation. And then we see that continuing to be emphasized throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Verse 2 explains verse 1 in a little bit more detail. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then after that, you have a description of the creation in day one, two, and three, and then day four, five, and six. And then at the beginning of chapter two, we have another kind of summary, epilogue. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And then verses two and three explain that in a little bit more detail. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So the corresponding prologue in verses 1 and 2 and the epilogue in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 of Genesis frame the six-day sequence of creation and they emphasize the sevenfold symbolism of God's work which culminates in the seventh day. In fact, even in a literary sense, the author is highlighting this sevenfold symbolism because all of this is written in groups of seven words. So the beginning of the story starts with this far-reaching description of God's power and influence over all existence. Mm -hmm. And yet, there are still some elements that challenge our understanding of what exactly is happening in the text. That's true. The first one of these challenging ideas is found in the first three words, in the beginning. The word beginning is referring not necessarily to a first point in time, but a preliminary period of time. So this is the beginning of our human reality, our experience of time. In other words, in the beginning of the creation. So rather than the beginning, this is instead referring to the beginning of time as we know it today, the beginning of humanity, the beginning of the human story of redemption. Exactly. It's this idea of the beginning of the beginning, which leads to the second highlight, which is God. In the beginning, God. This is the Hebrew word Elohim. And what's interesting about this word is it's not the personal name of Israel's God, Yahweh. That doesn't come up until chapter 2. 
This word Elohim is the most common general Hebrew term for any god, any deity or spiritual being. Elohim is technically a plural form of the word El, which is a divine being. It's used all over the Old Testament. Okay, so how would you typically see the name used? Well, Elohim sometimes refers to plural pagan gods worshipped by the nations surrounding Israel. Like in the Ten Commandments, God said, You shall have no other Elohim before me. Or it could have a singular meaning, referring to individual deities worshipped by Israel's neighbors, like Ashtoreth, the Elohim of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the Elohim of Moab, and Milcom, the Elohim of the Ammonites. Okay, which I think we can safely assume that's not what it's referring to here. (laughs) Right. The way Elohim is used here in Genesis 1-1, it's obviously a reference to the one God of Israel. But why use the plural form? Well, the plural form is probably used here to signify God's majesty. Sometimes a plural noun is used to describe a singular entity that is intense or large. So God is pictured as reigning over all other spiritual beings. So what is the significance of using that word in the context of creation? Well, by using the general term Elohim, the author chooses to describe this God as unique from all the other gods. This Elohim is without beginning. This Elohim is unbound by time and space, and he exists outside and independent of creation. Now, these ideas were unprecedented in the ancient world, and they set Israel's God and Israel's cosmology apart from the other ancient Near Eastern Elohim and their cosmologies. Okay, so we have beginning, Mm -hmm. we have God, both of which are giving us underlying messages of who God is and what he's about to do. What other words are jumping out to you from this passage? Well, the next is the word created. In the beginning, God created. And the form of this verb, interestingly, is singular, implying that God, the subject of the verb, is singular and not plural. So in the Old Testament, the verb create This particular Hebrew word is always used with God as the subject because it's describing something only God can do. Only Israel's God has the unique divine power to fashion something new and fresh and perfect. Now, this verb, create, is not always used to describe creation ex nihilo, uh, creation out of nothing. It often stresses forming something new, reforming or renewing. David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God. But the Bible does affirm creation ex nihilo, that God did create uh, the world and the universe out of nothing. But that's not the point of Genesis 1.1. And before we get to what that broader point is, let's tackle the last phrase, the heavens and the earth. Yeah, the heavens and the earth or the skies and the land. It just means the skies, everything above, and the land, everything underneath our feet, which is shorthand for the entire universe. This phrase often refers to the entire ordered world and everything in it. All right, so at the beginning of time itself, the singular almighty God sets out to divinely fashion all elements of our reality. Yet you said the outcome of creation is not the point of the verse's inclusion in Scripture. Right, and to understand how it's working to reveal the larger narrative, 
we need to add the context of verse 2. Genesis 1 and verse 2 says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here's the next phrase when you look at, without form and void. Now these are actually two rhyming Hebrew words, without form and void, tohu vavohu and tohu and bohu. They describe an empty, uninhabited wasteland. And then the word deep is a deep abyss or some kind of chaotic ocean. Meaning Genesis 1, 1 and 2 describes an unordered and uninhabited wasteland, the pre-creation state. This is what we moderns would call nothingness, right? Yeah. And here it's so important to remember that these ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, they don't function like ours. Theirs was a function-oriented ontology, meaning if it doesn't function, it doesn't exist, whereas ours is a substance-oriented ontology. For something to exist, for us modern people, it must be perceived in physical, material terms. This is a quotation from John Walton's book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. For the ancient biblical authors, creation was about the establishment of the functioning cosmos, not about the origins of the material structure or substance of the cosmos. So if you were to boil all of this down, what is the driving point of Genesis 1, 1, and 2? Genesis 1, 1, and 2 describe a chaotic, dark, lifeless non-reality. It's a hopeless situation of nothingness from which nothing can come. But in the midst of that nothingness, we are told that the Spirit of God was present. And what comes in the six-day sequence to follow, the summary prologue, is a carefully crafted description of God's forming and filling creation. Now, there could easily be a whole separate study around the creation account, but we do want to hit on this one idea, the forming and filling of creation. Yeah, each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and it ends with the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. In each day, God addresses the problems introduced in verse 2 so that whatever was chaotic becomes ordered. Whatever was uninhabited becomes inhabited. So remember verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's the problem. Well, in day one, light contains the darkness. In day two, the waters are separated and they're ordered. In day three, the dry land appears and edible plants emerge from the waters. So you have days one to three address the problem of disorder as God organizes the cosmos into distinct realms, the heaven above, the middle heaven and the middle earth, and the land below. And then days four to six show God filling each of these realms with their appropriate inhabitants, the heavenly realm with the lights, the middle heaven and earth with birds and fish, and then the land below with creatures and humans. So let's walk through the three movements and see how this works in practice. So how did day one and four model this form and fill structure? Well, in day one, God is providing his light to meet the darkness. 
He names the darkness, indicating his ownership and his power over it, and he limits its scope by containing it within the cycle of alternating periods of darkness and light. And in the corresponding day four, God fills the realm of space and the heavens with inhabitants, lights. These lights function to do the same work God himself did on day one, separating light from the dark. This is why the lights are called signs in chapter 1 and verse 14. They're physical symbols of God's own glory and the light that meet the darkness. And we continue to see this play out across the other pairings as well. So day 2 and 5, for example. Yeah, with day 2, God orders the middle realm that exists between what we think of as space, and the heavens above, and the land below. We would call it the sky. He first separates the unordered, chaotic waters and creates a border between the waters above and below called a dome or an expanse. And then on day five, God fills the waters above with birds and the waters below with sea creatures. He then blesses these living creatures and commands them to be fruitful and multiply. See, unlike the lights and the stars of day four, these creatures can experience God's blessing of life and abundance. And then by the time that we get to day three and day six, we see that creation has reached that final environment, land. Yeah, with day six, God causes living creatures to emerge from the ground like the plants on day three. The animals come first and then, as his crowning achievement, God creates human beings made in his image. And we're going to talk about that in a coming episode. To correspond with the bonus action of day three, on day six, God designates the plants as food for the animals and the humans. Now, this very intentional, deliberate design of the creation story leads us, the reader, to compare the matching elements in the first triad, days one to three, with the second triad, days four to six. God declares everything that he made good, but after making humans, He says that it is very good because this is the climax of his creative work. But after the six-day sequence, we're given a concluding line. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. That's Genesis 2 and verse 1. And then there is one more day given that breaks the pattern of days 1 through 6. The ultimate climax of the story of creation, the seventh day. And so that's Genesis 2 2 through 3, which says, And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Yeah, after God's creative work was finished, he rested. Now, the nuance of the verb uh, rested, Shabbat, is one of ceasing and stopping. It's not relaxing and rejuvenating. It's not like God got tired and he's taking a nap. Now later, this day of rest became a weekly day of rest or ceasing for the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, God tells them, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the rest, the Sabbath day, and made it holy. Now, in that passage, the word translated as rest and the word translated as Sabbath are two different Hebrew words. 
First, the word for Sabbath or Shabbat, it means to cease from. God ceased from his work because it was finished. But the word for rested there, nuach, means to take up residence. So whenever God or his people rest, it involves settling into a place that is safe and secure and stable where they can enjoy creation together. So once God rescued the world from the chaotic, the lifeless darkness of nothingness, he ceased from his creative work and took up residence in his creation? Right. All of creation becomes a cosmic proto-temple, which all later temples are symbolic miniatures. The seventh day was when God's presence filled the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Jerusalem. So the temple is the place of God's rest. God's rest on the seventh day of creation marks the time when God begins to dwell in his sacred space with his creatures. So the seventh day has no ending. Yeah, the phrase, and there was evening, and there was morning, it doesn't appear on the seventh day because it has no end. The seventh day exists in perpetuity. So by breaking the pattern, is God signifying his own intentions to dwell with his people forever? Precisely. And God's desire to be with us in this eternal rest is now realized in the work of Jesus Christ. The creation story of Genesis 1 is not simply a narrative of beginnings. It also teaches us how God works and foreshadows God's victory over evil. In Genesis 1, God addresses the two most iconic images of disorder, chaos, and death in the Bible, the darkness and the waters. These are opposed to God's purposes in creation, and he must overcome them to achieve his purpose. So God gives the light. Through light, God orders the heavens by sending his own divine glory into the chaotic darkness. He names the darkness night. He limits its scope and makes it fit within his own purpose. The darkness which could not support life is relegated to only certain times, and the light overcomes it, and life springs forth. And God also gives the land. Through the land, God creates a refuge from the chaotic waters which threaten human life by causing land to emerge from the waters. He commands the chaos waters to split, and they must obey his command. So in every way, God provides what is essential for plant, animal, and human life to flourish. He contains the darkness by sending his light. He tames the sea by raising up land, thus creating a space where life can be enjoyed abundantly. And God's conflict with the darkness in creation becomes an image of spiritual conflict that underlies the entire story of the Bible. In each case, his victory is achieved through his voice. Remember, in Genesis 1, God said, well, Jesus is the word of God. God sent his son Jesus into the world both as light and the living embodiment of his word to overcome the powers of darkness and all that threatens God's purpose of creation. Living in sin, we resemble the chaotic mess of the pre-creation state. We are without form and void. But through Jesus, God can order and fill our lives in his work of new creation. Genesis 1 is a repudiation of Babylonian and Egyptian creation myths. The true God exists independent of and exalted above his creation. His word commands reality and he orders and fills his creation with purpose and wisdom. 
The Bible is more than a storybook or even a collection of ancient documents. It holds the origins of humanity as told by the creator of all things. And that's just the beginning. But even in its telling of the beginning, it's showing the reader the character of our God. It's establishing his place in the center of the story and highlighting the constant care and love that he shows toward his creation. Join us next time as we zoom in closer to the creation account and explore the origins of man.